pendulum may have swung too far in the direction of uh, not lending uh, after a decade in which it had gone way too far in the direction of getting money out the door no matter the risk. Welcome to NPR's Planet Money. I'm Alex Bloomberg. And I'm Caitlin Kenny. Today is Wednesday, December 23rd. That was, of course, President Obama, you heard at the top, speaking after a meeting with executives of small banks. On the show today, a simple approximation for bivariate normal integral based on error function and its application on probit model with binary indigenous regressor. <laughs> what? That's that? not on the show today. Actually, that is sort of on the show today. What the, the, the show today is all about economic jargon. A lot of that in that title. Yes, there is. But first, the Planet Money Indicator. Wait, I have to do one thing. <laughs> That's a sound effect. Shout out to our very own Adam Davidson. Our Planet Money Indicator, you want to do this sound again? 25,000. That is the number of new homes sold in November. And that Sadly, record low. Right. It's the worst one-month new home sales number in history, actually. The previous record low for a month was in November of 1966. And this is significant because it throws cold water on some of the other better news we've been getting, you know, like, for example, slightly better unemployment numbers. And Alex, one of your favorite blogs and something we read a lot around here, what could it be? Calculated Risk, of course. I love that blog. (laughs) They have a great analysis of this. Uh, The author talks about this number, the new home sales number versus another number that recently came out, the existing home sales number. And the existing sales number, which came out earlier this week, was the complete opposite. It shot up. So it's kind of this mystery. New homes, record low. Existing homes, record high. What's going on there? Right. And not, not quite near. It's a, it's a near record high. But it's it, And you should go and read the post for a full explanation. But the takeaway, existing homes includes a lot of homes that just you know just got foreclosed on, for example, and are getting resold by the banks. Also, there's people rushing to take advantage of the first-time home, home buyer tax credit from the government. And also, there's in that existing home number, there's all these subdivisions that were built during the boom and that then never got moved into, and now where their prices are falling rapidly. So there's a lot of that homes, that the existing home sales number is reflecting a lot of economic bad news tied up in that good number. So it's not that good is what you're talking about. <laughs> well, no, I mean, it's, it's better than nothing. Uh, it's better than not having it go up. You know, it means that house prices are going to start to stabilize, which everybody says this is the thing that needs to happen before anything else happens. Um, but new home sales is, is what it's generally you know, linked with an expanding number. If that number is going up, then the economy is going up. Um, and that number going down is definitely, definitely bad news. So we'll have to keep watching that new number, I guess. Yes. Uh, but shall we uh, move on to yes, let's, the subject let's... of today's podcast? Uh, so last month, um, I happened to be browsing around on my computer doing Google searches. And um, I came across this abstract from an economic paper. And the abstract was so obtuse that I thought it – it sort of took my by surprise. I had no idea what it meant. Um, and I, I actually emailed it to Dave Kestenbaum, our colleague here at, at Planet Money, who is a former physics PhD. Super smart guy. Yeah. And, um, you know, he was a physicist. So I thought, well, he could make sense of this. I'm surprised you didn't ask me, Alex. Oh, well, I would – Yeah. Well, uh, uh. Anyway, why don't you tell us what it said? Okay, so here's what the abstract said. Um, it said this. This is the this is the uh, this is what confused me. 
We consider economies and diseconomies of scope for large U.S. banks by employing ordinary and hybrid translog cost functions. We examine the regulatory conditions in output space where a scope estimates are calculated and reject all models for which these conditions fail. The translog model always possesses violations. For the hybrid translog, violations occur in every case except one. In this one case, we find economies of scope. I can't believe you didn't get that. That's, like, so obvious. <laughs> it's so confusing that I actually don't even know how to read it because I don't know where to put <laughs> the emphasis. <laughs> There's yeah. so many, like, hybrid translog cost functions. <laughs> and then all of a sudden the period will show up, and I was like, oh, I didn't even know I was at the end of the sentence because I couldn't tell what the verb was, really. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, um Dave also did not have an answer, but he thought, hey, let's, we have a smart audience. Let's put this out there for Planet Money listeners and see if they can translate this jargon for us. So we put it up on our blog, npr.org slash money, by the way, and we got 35 comments. But I have to say only about 15 of those were actual answers. The rest were people sort of saying things to the effect of maybe economists are just trying to use jargon to disguise the fact they don't know anything about what they're talking about. So, for example, somebody named Beersy Boy, I don't, I'm assuming that's not their real name. Beersy Boy offered one possible translation, quote, we know how to obscure our lack of original thinking with clever gibberish. And my personal favorite, Josh Frank, ever since we were little, we've been very good at math, but lack certain social skills. We also think banks are neat and decide to study them. Unfortunately, we were all too shy to talk to people who knew about real banks. So instead, we built a model of what banks might be like. Fortunately, we found out there's a whole field of researchers and journals just like us, and they thought our math was pretty cool. <laughs> it's funny, but a little bit harsh, you have to admit. It's pretty harsh. I know. Yeah. But uh, we actually did get some people who really tried to break it down and make sense of it. So Dave decided to call up one of the authors of this actual paper, the guy who wrote this abstract that oh, we're the, talking about. the actual person who actually generated the words in question. Yes. I mean, who better to ask what it means than to go to the source, right? Yeah. Uh, so one so, of the authors... Actually, maybe we should have thought of that first. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> one of the authors, his name is Steve Miller. He's an economist at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. And we said, hey, you wrote this paper. You tell us who the winner is. Who did the best job deciphering what you said. The winner is, where's the drum roll? It's um, Jody Beggs. Jody Beggs. And All right. Can you read her? Looks like she has, she looks like she has a, a byline that says, economists do it with models. <laughs> so you... I, I don't know if she is an economist or she took economics and anyway, there must be a story there. Okay. Um, do you want, do you want to read, read it, it for us? Yeah, uh, Sure. Uh, we want to understand whether large U.S. banks enjoy cost advantages, parentheses, or disadvantages, end paren, from offering multiple lines of business rather than being focused on one product. We do this by looking at a data set of banks and trying to estimate their cost functions. In order to be able to do this, we need some sort of guess as to the structure of the cost function so that we can estimate the parameters of the function. We try a bunch of specifications that are generally reasonable guesses for what a cost function might look like and see what happens. After we've done the estimating, we look at the resulting cost functions and see whether what Stata spit out actually makes intuitive sense. Unfortunately, when we look at our estimated models, all of them except one give what we feel are nonsensical predictions, so they can't possibly be right. In the one model that we have left, once we've vetoed the nonsensical models, we find evidence that large U.S. banks do, in fact, enjoy cost advantages from offering a more diversified line of products. 
Well, I think we had a ringer there <laughs> because we might need a translator for her translation. Um, well, she had another a little more clear. So this came later. I have an updated translation. We use this here academic sentence generator, and then she gives the uh, HTTP address to generate convoluted prose that would both hide the fact that our evidence is not convincing and make us sound smart to the uninformed reader. Woo-hoo. Now, where's that weed? <laughs> she put one entry so in. So I, I did not penalize her for submitting the second one. <laughs> All right, so we, we actually have Jody Beggs on the line. Is that right? Hi, Jody. Hi, how are you? <laughs> have you been listening to this whole conversation? I have been listening. Well, congratulations. You're our winner. Why, thank you. Do you, um, do you by chance, have any economic training? Just a little bit, you know, six or so years. It only took about that much to figure out what was going on in the in the wording of that paper. Right. I'm actually a PhD student at Harvard finishing my dissertation. <laughs> uh, was it obvious to you what this was about when you read the abstract? Um, parts of it. Honestly, not all of it. Um, the concept of economies of scope is something that economists are generally familiar with. I did have to look up a little bit where the particular functional forms that the paper was talking about. So even with my background, it still took a little bit of effort to say, okay, what's, you know, what's really going on in this specific scenario? Jody, if you're looking through an economics journal, is it often the case that you find it's not easy to understand most of the, you know, a handful of the articles that are in there? All the time. <laughs> Um, especially especially in situations where you're not expecting to see the level of jargon that you actually encounter. I think a lot of it just comes from the fact that people are so used to speaking in an academic environment that they're conditioned to use words like that, and then that jargon spills over into different arenas. I think that's at least part of it. I, I think that is part of it. It's sort of like the, the comedian says, well, that's joke number 76 and everybody laughs. If an economist is, is doing his or her job correctly, it depends on the audience. If if I'm talking to Planet Money, I should I should choose my words more carefully uh, to be clear to the public who might not be familiar or probably is not familiar with sort of the jargon of, of economists. But when I'm writing for my colleagues in a journal, um, we have certain words that convey you know, a whole set of information to them so that we can be uh, precise in, in what we're saying and economize on the words that we're using. So, Caitlin, that makes sense. Like, basically, economists should should save the big jargon for their academic papers and select audiences of experts and, and make it more simple when they're talking to non-academics um, or even worse, people like us. <laughs> <laughs> um, but there's only one problem with that. Uh, what happens when we, when people like us actually want to read and understand these papers? But Alex, there is actually a place where you, me, people who don't understand words like hybrid cost function can go to try to figure out what they mean. There's a journal out of UC Berkeley. It's called The Economist's Voice. And during that conversation we had with the author of that very complex abstract, Steve Miller, he mentioned, hey, there's this journal out there. You should check it out. They try to be much 
much more accessible. So it's a jargon-free zone, basically. Exactly. Yeah. So Alex, you and Dave called up one of the editors of that journal. His name's Aaron Edlin. He's a professor of law and economics at UC Berkeley. And you say, hey, why don't you take a stab at breaking down this abstract? Right. And so uh, Dave read him the abstract. possesses violations for the hybrid translog. Violations occur in every case except one. In this one case, we find economies of scope. <laughs> so it sounds like gibberish, doesn't it? It does, yeah. Does it not sound like gibberish to you? Well, it largely does. It would take me a, a while to sit down and uh, parse that. Is this a problem in the profession in general? Are there things you read, you know, in, in journals or elsewhere that just that hard for you to make sense of? Uh, yes, there are many things that are hard to make sense of, uh, and there are two potential reasons. One is that uh, it's a very complicated idea, and so you, uh, it deserves – it requires a lot of time to understand. The other possibility, of course, is that the author is confused <laughs> and uh, isn't, isn't making sense to you because they aren't making sense. And that can be the case uh, – as frequently as not. Do you really mean that if I go to a library and I pick up an economics journal and I go flip through it, there'll be a bunch of articles in there where really the person who wrote it wasn't totally clear on everything they were saying also? Certainly. That's, I certainly mean – I certainly am audacious enough to claim that. that many, <laughs> many of the articles have that problem. But, but we're not so much about correcting that problem as we would be about uh, – Asking the – we do want to correct that problem, but we're much more about asking the person uh, to get out of the trees and see the forest or to get out of the forest, climb up to the top of the mountain and uh, ask what this really means for the world. So in the case of the abstract you have, uh, what do – what does their study of economies of – uh, scale or diseconomies of scale. Diseconomies of scope. Scope. Uh, <laughs> okay, so there we have there we have a question which could be about though you wouldn't guess it from the abstract. That could be about is it a good idea to have uh, Citibank uh, have a, a wide variety of lines of business as it's accumulated uh, over the past twenty years, and or. Uh, could it be the case that because Citibank has a, a wide variety of lines of business and does everything from commercial banking to investment banking to insurance, uh, that they uh, don't do any of it very well, take on a bunch of risks that they don't know about, and uh, create a systemic problem that is not just a problem for Citibank? So that would be a broader view of a diseconomy of scope that uh, that uh, we'd be more interested in publishing. You specialize in antitrust law. Is legal jargon worse? Is legal jargon worse? Uh, you know, what's actually in antitrust, a bigger problem is using jargon that is not well-defined. People use words like anti-competitive without... Uh, having any clearer, precise meaning. And that's uh, actually more frustrating to me than, uh, <laughs> right. than, you, than using jargon, which is, is, is well-defined but uh, initially unknown. Right. At least it's knowable. That, that I find much more frustrating than economics jargon. 
So, Caitlin, the thing I love about that interview is that no matter it, it sort of proves the theorem, the theorem that no matter what you're talking about, lawyers are always worse at it. You can always, <laughs> you can always blame the lawyer. There's always someone worse, and <laughs> yeah. it's a lawyer. But I think we exactly. have started a little. There's going to be a little tussle here. I anticipate some numerous emails from economists and lawyers complaining about uh, our discussion of their use of jargon. And uh, you know, bring it on. Send it into us here at Planet Money at npr.org or put comments in the blog at npr.org/money. All right, I think that's going to do it for us today. We want to give you time to pen those angry letters before in between we... the letters to Santa. Right, exactly. <laughs> before we go, we'd like to acknowledge two second place winners in our translation contest: Jayesh Sharma and Garrett Gee, the author of the paper. Stephen Miller selected you two as the second place winner. So, congratulations to you both. Um, and you can read all the contest submissions on our blog, npr.org slash money. Uh, and you can also vote for the winner of the Planet Money Iron Reporter Challenge, the second annual. That's right. I, for those of you who heard Monday's podcast, and if you haven't, you better go back and listen. We had a, a second challenge, a sequel to the Fancy Food Challenge. This time we sent three of our reporters to an international convention of shopping malls. And right now I'm looking at the latest poll results. Right now, Mr. Alex Bloomberg has taken the lead with oh. 615 votes. That's right. So if you want Alex to be the winner, keep pushing him forward. And if you don't, you you better get in there and vote for Hannah or Adam. Now's your chance to start hating on me. <laughs> exactly. So <laughs> go to npr.org slash money. And you have until midnight tonight, Wednesday, December 23rd, to cast those votes. I'm Caitlin Kenny. And I'm Alex Bloomberg. Thank you for listening.